And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion of the topic of African-American literature and education. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. My next distinguished guest came to my attention when I read his commentary titled, Where Do Biases Start? A Challenge to Educators, in the October 15, 2014 issue of Education Week, available via edweek.org. Not only did he make excellent points, he also offered detailed solutions and practices what he espouses. Dr. Darius Pryor is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Foundations and Leadership, School of Education, Duquesne University. He received his Ph.D. in educational leadership from Miami University, Oxford, Ohio, and B.A. and M.P.A. degrees from Wright State University. Dr. Pryor is currently working on a forthcoming text, The Media War on Black Male Youth and Urban Education, which will be published with Rutledge. He speaks nationally on matters related to urban youth culture, leadership, and social justice education. Darius, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson. It's uh, so good to be with you. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. I, 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 was, I was trying to hunt you down since October, so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we finally were able to connect. I'm excited, man. I've, I've been really wanting to dialogue with you about uh, these critical issues facing our young people for so long, so I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here in this space with you um, today. Great. Uh, well, let's get started. Uh, what can us educators the community and youth advocates learn from the recent tragedies of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Eric Gardner, and the Mike Brown cases? Yeah, my, my heart really um, goes out to, to each of those families. And, you know, I'm often asked to speak in front of young people as well as educators to to make sense of these uh, vulnerable times. I think, one, we have to be honest that we're in, in a very vulnerable time in terms of the racial assault on the black male body politic, and, and so we've really got to ask ourselves some hard questions that reminds me back in 1903 of Du Bois' The Souls of, of Black Folk when he asked, how does it feel to be a problem? You know, and he has a quote in there in which he says, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, of always having to look at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul through the tape of a world who looks on with amused contempt and pity. And so we are at a time in which many of our young people are being looked at with amused contempt uh, and pity, and so, uh, and then they've remixed the question for us, Dr. Jefferson, in which they ask, "Does Black life matter?" And so, uh, if there could ever be an educational moment, um, it's a very serious question to ask when you see a young man by the name of Mike Brown who's lying in a pool of blood for over four hours. Uh, you know, despite the details that we're still trying to figure out, what we do know is that he was walking home uh, to his grandmother's. Uh, we have Trayvon Martin, who was suspicious by being in his very hoodie and his dark jeans, and uh, he was walking home back to an all-star game from purchasing Skittles uh, and an iced tea. Everybody's familiar with Eric Garner. When we see uh, a man being choked out uh, through an illegal chokehold, that we see him die in a matter of three or four minutes on a YouTube clip uh, screaming, I can't breathe. Uh, and so, uh, and then, of course, Jordan Davis that doesn't get talked about a lot as well uh, for his loud thug music. So we, we are at a very vulnerable time that we have to begin asking uh, three questions. And, and those three questions is, are, 
One, um, how do we help uh, young people navigate a world in which they feel uh, unsafe, as Cornel West would say, unsafe, unprotected, and subject to random violence? Two, how can we begin to see young people as solutions and assets rather than being seen as problems? And three, uh, can we teach young people how, how to live rather than just survive? And so for me, that's the context and that's the framework of uh, the kind of conversations that I'm having uh, with community folk, with educators, with educational leaders, and in anybody, quite frankly, who's willing to listen, because I think this is one of the, our most urgent issues of our time, is, is, is how we think about our uh, African-American males, how they are positioned within these problematic discourses, and then, uh, you know, what's the impact and effect of our treatment of them. Now, what do you say to people who try to mute um, your voice or, or your position on this by saying some people would argue that these are just isolated incidents that have nothing to do with race. Right. So we, we know that, um, you, you know, part of the challenge is that uh, we are just now getting national attention on these on these issues. So when we look at um, everybody from Abner Lewima to Sean Bell to Oscar Grant to Michael Stewart, uh, the list goes on and on. So uh, these are there's something systemic about uh, a pattern history of gunning down of unarmed men for a mistaken uh, wallet or a mistaken pop bottle, uh, and, and, and that we don't see uh, white male faces or we don't see white female faces in, in a systematic pattern of, of, of gunning down to the ex- execution of their death. So uh, as Americans, um, if we claim that we are in this democratic society and that we are about liberty, justice, and peace uh, for all, if we're to hold true to those ideals, then, then we really have to, to take a step back uh, and understand that there's a wider issue at stake when advocates who are trying to press for peace and protest for peace to be met with uh, tanks and guns by law enforcement. There's a much deeper systemic problem that it did not just originate today, but uh, has been throughout the course of our history. Now, what would you say is the media's role in relation to these tragedies? Wow. Um, the media is probably, for me, um, one of the most powerful instigators of the culture of punishment that has wreaked havoc on African-American males. And one of the things that I've done in the past is I have this idea, um, well, it's not my idea, but, but those of us in, in education and cultural studies uh, work is, is we deal with critical media literacy, right? So normally we think about literacy as the ability to read uh, linguistic text, right? But we're talking about a much broader form of literacy in terms of the power relations and the social arrangement of images that have disparaging effects on young people and African-American males in particular. So if you think about Dr. Jefferson, um, even toward the latter part of the 80s and into the 90s, there was a series of urban films in which had a problematic, recurring, reproduced stereotype of the African-American male as the criminal or as the thug. So if you remember the principal, right, with Jim, with um, uh, James Belushi, where on the front cover, one of the things I teach my students is, is to look at how images are arranged and how uh, the words evoke or communicate certain ideas for these particular recurring themes. So if you look on the, color, on the cover of the principal, for example, you see uh, Belushi with a bat, right? And then on the front cover, you know, it says, when students major in arson, extortion, and assault, uh, the principal and the security uh, may be just crazy enough to turn things around. Or in 1992, you remember the familiar film of Juice, right, with uh, mm-hmm. starring in Tupac. And on the front of cover of Tupac, right, you see his hoodie. And it's a very dark image. And behind it uh, is his friends who are, who are really kind of positioned as in- innocent. But 
Uh, when you think of juice, what was that? That was power, that was respect. And, and how you obtain it? Well, in that particular movie, you obtained it through violence. So this is an association of black manhood in relationship to violence to, in order to obtain power uh, and respect. Or we can go further in 1993 with Menace to Society. Again, a familiar narrative of this idea of being a trouble to society. One of the more popular films in 1995 was with Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. Notice on the cover, Dangerous Minds, and then you have chocolate bodies in the background uh, with this association of the mind being kind of psychotic and dangerous. Uh, mm. You know, you can fast forward to The Substitute in 1996. I don't know if you remember that. It was not as well known, but on, on the front cover of The Substitute, it said that the most dangerous thing in the school used to be the students, and there's a picture of a teacher with a, um, an Uzi on the table of his desk, right? Uh, and then uh, one of the more familiar ones uh, in 1997 was with Samuel Jackson in 187. In 187, we know, is the code word for homicide. Homicide is what is murder. And on the, co on the cover of that particular film, I'm not even talking about, I haven't even gotten into the nuances of the film, but these are just a few examples. But on the cover of that, it says when, uh, uh, when schools become war zones, and both sides begin to take casualties, then what? So it's this militaristic posture on the urban male body politic in which uh, homicide becomes a central theme. So, uh, so media for me, when we think about images and pictures and, and all of those things, they last with us the longest in our subconscious. So whether we know it or not, we operate off of our subconscious the, more, the majority of the time when we go out throughout our day. And so we mm -hmm. have to ask questions about, how media, as an industry, wields a certain kind of power and influence and manipulates our um, understanding or our public consciousness about how African-American males are viewed that then presents these entanglements of where we could see a body laying in the street or who could be killed for loud thug music uh, in mm. the case of Jordan, Jordan Davis. Now, what can we... Before we take a break, um, I just want to get uh, at least a beginning of your take on this. What can we do as a society to curb the long-held tensions toward black males in society? It's a great question. Um, for me, it's about building relationships. It's about understanding um, humanity, truly understanding humanity in all of its context. And, you know, the majority of the students I, I work with, uh, Dr. Jefferson, are are white. Uh, these are future teachers that they're going out into our, our schools. Uh, the majority of our population nationally, of our teacher population, are white. Uh, and the majority of that population are females. And so I have a predominantly white female population now. The fact that they're white and the fact that they're white and female is not necessarily a problem. All, we need all hands on deck when it comes to educational excellence of our kids. And, and we do not want to teach a segregated society. The problem that has happened is that the majority of many of these students have lived in isolated, segregated environments, and so they've never interacted with, played with, or associated with persons of color. And so much of the information that they have received comes from where? Back to media. Well, when we begin to look at media, there are studies, for example, the Heinz Endowments did a study not too long ago where they wanted to see what were the common themes around African-American male portrayals here in the city of uh, Pittsburgh, and it, you know, it wasn't much of a surprise that the familiar narratives or the top narratives that came up uh, in association with African-American males were, were crime, entertainment, and sports. So we know that's not just a local phenomenon, but that's a national phenomenon. And so mm -hmm. what I have done in terms of trying to be the solution is I actually take 
our classes out into urban community-based settings, and I develop panels where I have youth advocates, I have community advocates, and I really allow young people to really pour their heart out about um, the particular institutional barriers that they confront within institutional discrimination to police brutality, to violence, to poverty, and I have them uh, really articulate their position on um, the cultural entanglements that they face. And, and so, uh, you know, this quote by Paulo Freire is that uh, I must become acquainted with their being in the world, and if not become intimately acquainted, they become less of a stranger to it. So part of my job is how can I help pre-service teachers become less of a stranger to a world that they've never interacted with before? And it has been my case and it has been my experience over the past four years that um, some of our students come back crying. And I ask, you know, was this mm. too much, right? Was this too much for you or, what? you know, what was it about this experience that, you know, has you react in this way? And they come back to me on many occasions and said, no, this was, this was, this was what I needed. You know, I was always taught mm-hmm. in these particular areas, and I never saw this area as a community, let alone see them as people, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's the kind of reception that I get from actually having them touch the flesh and the pain and the victories and the highs and the lows and the experiences of a community that has been long neglected in many of our urban communities across the chocolate cities um, of America. And so, uh, so that has been one of the things that I've been doing is, is to really build relationships and building those relationships through community engagement. Excellent. Well, at this time, we need to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Dr. Darius D. Pryor. Uh, Dr. Pryor, let me first apologize because I realized right away that I needed you on for an entire hour. We're definitely going to run out of time because <laughs> I want to discuss. But hopefully we'll get together maybe in a different forum. And I do like Pittsburgh. So maybe we get together in another forum. Um, because I really, I'm really interested in a lot of the stuff that you, you've done. And, and we haven't even touched on much of it as of yet. But uh, let's go back to what attracted me to you. In your Education Week article, you mentioned a concept called critical media literacy. What do you mean by this? And how challenging biases and stereotypes toward black males? So, so yeah, just to kind of reiterate. So for example, so in many of the examples uh, that I just mentioned, it, it is to say that um, images are not just by coincidence, that there are um, asymmetrical power relationships in the ways in which images are arranged within the media industry, right? So when we see uh, the report that I had just mentioned a few minutes ago uh, from the Heinz Endowments, that uh, the, the narratives that kept coming up were related to, uh, in terms of the, the stories that were featured, related to crime, uh, sports, and entertainment, it is to say that there is an imbalance in what kind of narratives are being produced in the media. And um, when you have that kind of imbalance, then it gives us a distorted um, picture about the total complexity of who African-American males are and critical media literacy allows us to have a sophisticated understanding 
in the arrangement of of those uh, images and that they are not just innocent, that uh, we all know that any time we get into the business of movies that we want to sell or advertisements that we, uh, when we want people to buy things, um, that there are people who have been trained to produce images in particular ways that um, attract our appetite, right? And so, um, and so that's what critical media literacy does. It's having a critical lens around the social arrangements of images. Uh, and in this particular context, I apply critical media literacy to the image-making practices of African-American males. Okay. Now, with regards to education, how do the images we see of black males in media impact the teacher's social interaction with students in a classroom? So, so what ends up happening is that if the majority of our teacher population um, do not look like African-American males themselves or persons of color, if it is the case that much of the information that they have already received comes from media, because that has been their point of reference, by and large, for the majority um, of their lives, then much of the information that they're acting on, um, when they step into their first diverse urban classroom, is from the media. So that becomes very problematic, because for the kid who comes in with the sagging pants, who comes in wearing the do-rag, or who comes in wearing the, the bubble coat, right, um, becomes a certain kind of associative meaning that um, is familiar within their subconscious based on the limited information that they have been given by the distorted images that they have seen in the media. So this is not just something that I'm simply saying, but over the course of four years when I asked the question, well, if, if you've lived in this particular kind of community, where is the information that you've received about diverse persons of color? And nine chances out of ten, they will tell me radio, uh, mm. television, or movies, right? And so, so that's why this becomes problematic in understanding the relationship between the kind of education they've received from media uh, to the type of, uh, of social interactions that play out in the classroom. And so, uh, and so it ends up being the case that our young people end up getting uh, sent to the office uh, in, disp- in a disproportionate manner uh, than other students who may be wearing the same kinds of clothes, right, mm-hmm. who may have their hat on or who may have their hoodie on, right? And so you get into these microaggressions in which young people get suspended and expelled in a disproportionate manner uh, than other students. And so, um, so, so that's what I've been really trying to tease out when uh, in my research some years ago, when I was interviewing young people in these hip-hop-based learning communities, that was what they said, is that, you know, Dr. Pryor, you know, once they see me enter the classroom with my pants sagging, they label me as trouble. And they said it's, it's hard to get rid of these labels, you know. And, and so uh, that was very thought-provoking for me. And uh, when you see the national events that are going on today and when you see the kids and how they've been gunned down, they come from that hip-hop culture. That's mm-hmm. part of the language. That's a part of their community context. That's how they self-identify good, bad, and everything in between, and, and we just can't simply dismiss them because of, of their visual aesthetics are not comfortable to us because it may be a different world than, than what we're used to. Yeah. Now, do you find that there was, has been a shift over the past 30 years? Because I know 
Um, I grew up with uh, hip hop. It was a different kind of hip hop. I had my my shell top Adidas and my fat laces, and I did break dancing. And um, but we were more. The language was different before the advent of uh, gangster rap or or West Coast rap. Um, it was more positive, you know, since kindergarten, I acquired the knowledge that after first grade, I go straight to college. You know, you don't even know your English, your verbs and nouns. It was cool to be smart. It was cool to be able to speak well. It was. But at the same time, it was OK to wear what was then hip hop. Do you see something that has shifted over the past 20 or 30 years? I think that if, you know, one, it would be my my contention that, um, you know, since the, the latter part of the 80s um, on up to now, you've always had three particular discourses in hip-hop. You know, you've always had social, social and politically conscious hip-hop. You know, you've always had the KRS-1s, the Commons, uh, the Lupe Fiascos, the Talib Kweli's, the Most Defs. Uh, you've always had, um, you know, folks who um, have spoken to a critique of societal injustice and have spoken to empowerment, have spoken to uh, really giving our people a sense of self-determination and agency. I think you have always had gangster rap, you know, back to Ice-T, to N.W.A., to uh, to Scarface, to Mob Deep, to, you know, uh, so we've, mm-hmm. always, we've always had gangster rap, you know. Now, you know, the third discourse of hip-hop, I would argue that the combination of, 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 of gangster rap and is, is really this, uh, this market-driven commercial discourse of hip-hop in which uh, money, you know, we seem to have a very preoccupation with money as God, right? And so this is this celebration of opulence in the music. Uh, and, and so it still continues the gangster rap, but, but money has become more of a preoccupation. So I think we've always had those three different strands of hip-hop. I think that the, the issue today is that we've given more visibility, perhaps, to the more gangster-driven forms of hip-hop than perhaps we've done with the social and politically conscious hip-hop that, that tends to be outside of the mainstream and that tends to be in the margins or tends to be in what they call underground hip-hop. So I think we've always had all three, and I think artists have always played in between all three, and, and, and none of them or most of them would not even like to be situated within a particular category. But, um, but I think the emphasis and the money that's being put behind uh, hip hop today falls within the gangster strand or the market driven commercial strand of hip hop that we see predominating. And so that's the projected image and the projected narrative and the projected lifestyle that tends to be more celebrated and what tends to be more commodified and where money is, is being uh, cashed in, as, as it were. And, and I have to admit that I'm so tied to the, the positive old school roots that when I see a show, uh, a new show like Empire, um, that's based on a hip hop label and money, money, money and extravagance, it's just a turn off. And I guess I'm one of the few people who has had an opportunity to meet one of his, his, his heroes from the past and have, you know, a solid conversation. This past summer, I actually sat right next to, uh, DMC from Run DMC on a flight from Las Vegas back to New York. Oh, wow. So to have an yeah to have an opportunity to actually thank somebody for having a positive influence and in making your childhood fun and believe it or not we spoke more about family and more about um, creative pursuits other than you know just hip hop but right. I just felt so because he's one of those who chose not 
to go to gangster route. He's one of those who chose not to um, sell out. In fact, he takes a lot of heat from some of the comments he makes um, against uh, what's going on today. So um, I just I just felt there was a shift. I, I was always so enamored with the positive or the comical like Will Smith uh, that um, I was completely turned off from hip hop um, when gangster rap uh, came into vogue. But maybe I'm just, uh, a, a, I don't know, I mean, I'm just a, a different animal because I do have friends from my era who are still very much into hip-hop. No, I, I think so. you're right because I think for, for us, at, at the end of the day, at least for me, you know, anyway, as, as I, you know, I've, I've worked with young people who I've, I've seen one day and uh, two weeks later, you know, they're found shot dead in the head in the back of an alley. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, you know, and music was the narrative that really uh, make the connection. So the things that I was seeing in their lives w- was the same kind of narratives that were being reflected in the lyrics, you know, when I would host open mic nights in my local community in Ohio years ago. And, and mm-hmm. so when, you, you know, a light bulb came on for me. Uh, doc, Dr. Pryor, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I knew you needed more time, but we are out of sorry. time. Um, <laughs> well, wh- yeah. Where can people go to, to, to get your book? Absolutely. They can go to uh, Amazon.com, and uh, the book uh, right now that I have out, uh, because I'm still working on the other one, is Culturally Relevant Teaching Hip-Hop Pedagogy in Urban Schools. So that, that can be reached at Amazon.com, and uh, it's, it's nothing but a click away. And um, be on the lookout for the other book, uh, The Media War on Black Youth in Urban Education. Uh, that's slated for sometime next year, so I'm hard at work on that. Great, Dr. Pryor. We'll speak again. Thank you.